You're listening to The Best Possible Taste with Sharon Noonan. Sponsored by thetaste.ie. Voted Ireland's best online food and drink magazine. Good evening and you're very welcome to this week's Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan and on tonight's show, our resident wine guru, Ron Forrestal from Forrestal Wine Merchants, will be in studio shortly to share his wine recommendations for the festive season. I'll be putting a call in to Michael Corbett from Emerald Oils in County Tipperary to find out more about his award-winning rapeseed oil. And then to finish off the show tonight, I'm delighted to share with you the first in a series of podcasts from the Food and the Edge team. And tonight, JP McMahon is focusing on seaweed. If at any point you'd like to get in touch with me here at the show, you can drop me an email to s.noonan at live.ie or tweet me at Queen of Org, as in Queen of Organisation. So to start the show off tonight, I'm delighted to welcome into the best possible taste studio our resident wine expert, Ron Forrestal from Forrestal Wine Merchants. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleunte. Ron, you're welcome to the studio and we are going to talk about our Christmas wines tonight. Yes, uh, Sharon, uh, thanks very much and happy Christmas. Um, I suppose Christmas is a time of year where people who wine that might, might be their first choice of a drink definitely will come across it in some way or another over, over December. So um, uh, it's important to probably to find products that you, you can drink happily when you sit out or having dinner with somebody or in a group. Uh, what to look for maybe that might help. And we feel the need to stock up in large quantities, <laughs> I find. And the earlier we stock up, the more we tend to buy yeah, because yeah. we get through it so much quicker then. It is. And when you have so many days, you know, where people are, are so busy. And so I always find that it's so hectic up to it for everybody, no matter what kind of business you're in. And then it just all stops, you know, and then there's the sitting around thing for a week or so, which is uh, remarkable, really. And that's when people have a glass of wine, you know, and have uh, the people calling over. How many times do you see anyone come to your house for the rest of the year? You know, it's, the, it's probably the one time when people do. It's important to have some wine. Wine's good value. You know, if you're trying to find what somebody else drinks, besides that, you know, or what are you going to stock? Half a dozen different spirits or something to figure out what somebody wants. But at least you can take out a bottle of wine or you can take out a beer and offer a beer. Uh, so they're very straightforward and much easier. So, you know, you, you can be buying it to have it in the house yourself, to drink yourself and for visitors and also for gifts. Yes. So you have a few different suggestions here that can fit all different whatever we need them to do. Yes. And of course, of course, we'll start with bubbles. I think that's nice to start with a bit of fizz. Well, yes. Yeah, I brought a couple here today. Prosecco is just so hugely popular. Champagne is, is getting a little more popular again. Just the price is very prohibitive that it's it's um, a good bottle of champagne is going to cost you around 40 euros um, where you're probably getting three bottles of Prosecco for that. Uh, you're getting two decent bottles of Prosecco. And is champagne much drier? I find much it's drier. much drier. Yeah, the funny thing is, that we were talking about this with a champagne company uh, a couple of years ago. They were saying champagne will get its day back again. You know, it's the it's the classic drink. It's the classic bubble. And it will get its day back again. And uh, there was a guy from uh, from Italy there who wasn't selling Prosecco now, but there was a guy from Italy there. He said, funny thing, I don't think so, because people have got used to drinking Prosecco, which is much sweeter full of sugar, much sweeter than uh, champagne is. And he said, I don't think they'll go back because it's not it's not like they were drinking champagne, they're now drinking Prosecco. They, they, they always have been drinking Prosecco. They just don't see why. And he said, champagne is what you said. It's too dry, it's too biscuity. You can drink a cup of glasses, but that tends to be it. Whereas people can drink a lot of Prosecco. Mm-hmm. You know, you can have a few glasses of Prosecco and, and feel like it's a, a drink for the night if you feel like it. 
And we have these, with that in mind, the, you know, the thing about Prosecco is that once you open the bottle, you have to drink it. It, it doesn't last. The bubbles are going to die out. It's pressurized inside the bottle. And once the pressure is let out, the bubbles go. So we have these um, 200 ml, which are the smaller bottles. We have a couple of different uh, varieties, a couple of different qualities of them as well. Um, but this is probably the top-in quality. La Marsa Prosecco has a pop-off cork, champagne cork. Um, now, they're not that cheap, but they're perfect to have. Just to have a few of them, a half dozen of them, you'd get nearly two glasses, two standard champagne glasses out of them. And they're just beautiful. You have them in the fridge, they're easily stored, and they're lovely. I think they're ideal. Yeah, especially, as you say, if you are if you don't have somebody to help you drink, or two yeah, or three yeah. people to help you drink Absolutely. the bottle, and you do like to have one or two glasses of it, they are ideal for that. I think they're perfect. Um, and, you know, they cost, they cost around, like, five or six euros. They're not cheap now. But then again, you're getting a really good product. Uh, then we have another one, which is a more uh, a screw cap version one, costing around four euros a bottle, which is better value. Uh, hasn't got as much bubble as this one would have though. And is that a frizzante that you have yes. there as well with the screw top? And that is a it is a prosecco as well. Yes, and this is great value. You're talking about eleven euros a bottle uh, from a very good producer, which is San Osvaldo. Um, it's produced in the winery, as in it's the the process is the same process they use to make pop off cork one. Um, with the bottle being pressurised lovely product really really good bubble but again it needs to be drank pretty quickly it's the kind of thing you need to open and serve out fairly quickly within an hour or two anyway. I want to ask you about the alcohol level um, what it's not that high it's 11% yeah. is the smaller bottle yeah, the same yeah it's the same I think it's 11 and would champagne yeah. be more or less the not same or higher. would it be more than that no not much higher either generally around 11 11 and a half 12 in a very exceptions because yeah. I think that makes a huge difference you know, when some of the reds that you go, it could yeah, be 14, 14 like, 15, you know, 16 in some cases. Yeah, yeah, like that's just really blue. And they mature a bit as well, the reds. So there is a bit of concentration of the alcohol. Mm-hmm. So the alcohol doesn't go down when the reds go into the bottle. If anything, it goes up a slight bit, mm-hmm. a degree or two. So they're a real drink. And of course, the Prosecco is all from Italy. Yes, within the Prosecco region. Because that is an area like Champagne, Absolutely. it's an area in France. Then you have Spumante, which is the other, um, the other region which produces sparkling wine in Tell us a bit about the Asti Spumante now. I think that would yeah. have been a big thing about 20 years ago. I remember from my was it my 18th or my 21st, that was like, let's get her a few bottles of Asti Spumante. And we yeah. thought we were drinking champagne. You course. don't see it at all anymore. Um, um, it's a low alcohol. It has a relatively low alcohol at about 6 or 7%. Is it as low it. as that? Yeah, it's, it's a, because it has some fruit juice added and things to it. It's not a clean and clear wine. You know what I mean? It's more of an addition. And then you have Lambrusco. Lambrusco was the original thing that people used to drink. That was probably one of the first wine products that came into the country and was put into a bar. Because you could get small bottles of Lambrusco, like small single-serve bottles of Lambrusco, 25 years ago, uh, because the English market wanted them. And that was a fruit juice added to wine with a bit of bubble, small bit of bubble, and made it very drinkable. Just like West Coast Cooler for all the world, you know, very similar kind of product. And I think I said this to you before that whenever I was doing the research for the food tour that I dis- I discovered that Jeff Reed, who was involved mm. in Ballygown Water, he was the first person to introduce the little bottles of wine into Ireland under the name of Grape Expectations, which okay. I thought was a great name for a company. Yeah. Yeah, so there he you go. He's a great guy. It's just yeah. a little bit of trivia yeah, there that I discovered. Now, you have, is that two reds you have and two one reds. white? Uh, okay. Yeah, I brought, well, I suppose the reason I brought a white about it, New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, because New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, the sales go up and up at this time of year. Because people who normally drink like a Chilean Sauvignon Blanc might go a little more up market towards Christmas. And that tends to be New Zealand. 
this is Kono, uh, first Maori owned, um, 100% Maori owned vineyard um, in Marlborough. Um, it's a fantastic Sauvignon Blanc, costing around 13 euros a bottle. Is this a very light in colour Sauvignon Blanc? Are they usually as light as that? Yeah, they tend to be all that kind of colour. Yeah. The bottle is clear in that one, so it makes it has a slight green tinge, which makes it uh, look like that. But yeah, they tend to be all that colour. And that's 12.5% mm. um, and it contains sulfates. Does that mean it gives you a really bad hangover? If Not you at all. They all do. Every one of them. <laughs> contains, it's, a, I, it's so hard to get something that doesn't contain sulfates. It's used to filter it, so there's just no other Yeah, I was at, at an event there a couple of weeks ago and they were talking about the biodynamic wines and all of that. And I'd said, are those the ones that don't give you a hangover? I said, look, Sharon, it's like this. If you drink too much of it, it's going to give you a hangover. So, and particularly if you mix them. Mix them is, tends to be the biggest issue for people. Yeah. Particularly if you go drinking Prosecco and then wine. Yeah, you were saying stick to the Prosecco. Stick to one or the other. Yeah, absolutely. Or go on to the water. That's it. I'll take a water every now and again, which really helps. So then there's a, there's a, then I brought a Bordeaux. This is a, Bordeaux, a very good value Bordeaux. It's a Bordeaux AC, which is the affiliation control in, in um, Bordeaux. Uh, this is a blend of uh, Cabernet Merlot, Cabernet Franc, three great varieties, but a lovely drink and great, great value at about 10 or 11 euros a bottle. Great product. Really goes well in restaurants. And you know, we always make some reference to labelling and packaging whenever we're talking about the wine and this bottle looks it looks really expensive it just mm. looks like a real old exactly yeah keep it save it put it away bottle of french wine yeah but it's not now it's it's to be drank pretty young like within a few years it's not meant to be put away and mm-hmm. for your kids graduation or anything you and know, how much did you say that is 11 euros a bottle okay so these are they're all very affordable these these yeah the last yeah. one that i picked is for people who like <clears throat> the reason I, it's a pinot noir it's for, uh, from burgundy and the reason i picked a pinot noir is because particularly if you're looking at christmas day uh, it's nice to have something that isn't too heavy and Pinot Noir is pretty light because you're eating so early in the day that it's to drink a, an Australian Shiraz or something would, you know it'll put you out by 6 o'clock you'll be asleep somewhere on a couch whereas at least if you drink something a little bit lighter you have more of a chance of, of lasting the day So the three the last three wines the Sauvignon Blanc and the Bordeaux and the Pinot Noir would you recommend those to go with if you're having a traditional yeah, turkey absolutely. Christmas yeah. dinner I particularly take the last one the Pinot Noir I think is a fantastic but like Sauvignon Blanc always works because people not so much with turkey but what you're going to have before it which tends to be like smoked salmon or you know some kind of salad or whatever it may be that tends to work very well with that um, but I think the this Pinot Noir works very well with turkey again we said this before it's not so much the turkey, it's what goes with the turkey is what you have to worry about. The turkey is very bland, you know, it's very, it's all the rest of the stuff that goes with it, cheese things. So the mushy Brussels sprouts. And exactly, yeah. And the heavy gravy and, you know, the um, stuffing, which is probably the most powerful tasting thing in the whole thing. Yeah. Um, and roast potatoes and you have so many flavours going on. Um, but I think this Pinot Noir, that's a bright film, it, it's a really, this is reserve, um, it's a fantastic product, costing around 15 euros a bottle now. It's a bit dear. Okay. But I think they're a great drink. And then for dessert, you do a lovely dessert wine by, is it Ned? It's the called? Ned, yeah, New Zealand one. Mm. Um, it's a Botrytis uh, Sauvignon Blanc, which means they leave the, the Sauvignon Blanc uh, grapes out an extra three weeks. So they almost whizzle on the vine, end up with a tiny drop of juice coming out of each one. But it's a very concentrated, high sugar um, uh, juice that comes so the, the, it's quite expensive because there's such a small yield out of what they do. Um, but it's actually it's lovely. Just a little tipple of it. You know, it's not a glass. Thing. It's like it's a sherry yeah. glass portion. Exactly. Like you a would have it to go have. with the Christmas Not a glass of it, no. Hence it's in half bottles. The idea is the half bottle will serve 
nine, ten people maybe. Would you put ice in that? God, no. But would you serve it chilled? Yes. Not too chilled now. Not ice cold because you won't taste it. It's more, you know, like your fridge, your normal fridge that you'd have. You know, where people drink white wine, they tend to like it really cold. You know, where they'd sit in ice to make sure it chills down. But dessert wine doesn't need to be that cold at all. You just won't taste it and it'd be a terrible waste because it's not cheap. In terms of people buying presents of wine now for Christmas, is there certain types of wine that prove to be very popular as a gift option? Well, we do an awful lot of two packs and, you know, single bottle packs, you know, where you'd have companies that would um, give them out to either customers or whatever the case, suppliers or whatever it may be. And uh, they're very popular because you can basically put anything you want into them. Um, and they come in a nice box. So t- people tend to put in either Pinot Grigio or Sauvignon Blanc because that's the most all-rounder. Um, and then they pick a Merlot, Cabernet, maybe Shiraz or Malbec. That's about the four really they put up. Now, the tint, France gets gets a good lift in December. People go back to French product again. Um, and New Zealand does really well. Um, but Italy, I think, is always a perfect one because you've a nice, you have a Pinot Grigio, which kind of suits a lot of people. And for some great reds, some really nice reds that you don't see around that much. And it looks like you put a bit of thought into it. Okay, fantastic. Well, I'm sure you're flat out between now and Christmas. So if people, yeah, it's a great time of year. If yeah. people want to get in touch with you, just go onto the website, forest.ie, and make contact, and you'll be taking orders for the next week or so. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming in tonight to tell us about those, and we wish you a Merry Christmas. Thanks so much for all your contributions no every month. We really appreciate you coming thank into you. the great studio. Show. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste with Sharon Noonan. Sponsored by thetaste.ie. Voted Ireland's best online food and drink magazine. Welcome back to The Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan and just before the break, our resident wine expert, Ron Forrestal from Forrestal Wine Merchants, shared his wine recommendations for the festive season. And you'll find details about the wines that Ron was discussing on his website, www.forrestal.ie If you're just tuning in, you can catch up on Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM when it's repeated on Wednesday mornings at the new time of 8am. And the podcasts are available to listen to on SharonNoonan.com as well as iTunes and the podcast app. And it's also on the taste.ie website, voted Ireland's best online digital food and drink magazine. Still to come tonight with the first episode in the Food on the Edge podcast to look forward to when JP McMahon focuses on seaweed. But before that, we're heading to Tipperary. Michael Corbett joins us on the line now to tell us about his unique emerald oils. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Michael, emerald oils, I think, really stands out from the other rapeseed oil producers because of the the roles that you play at each stage of processing the oil? Yes, that's right. We, um, I'm a grain farmer, so we grow our crops and we press them, bottle them and uh, do the whole process on the farm. And you made the conscious decision to do that? Yes, uh, so we're farming always, three generations of, of family farming and uh made a decision in zero, well, before, I suppose we went on shelves in 15, so a few a year or so before that to um, start processing the, the oil seed and bring it another step further. And you're based in County Tipperary in Cashel, is it? 
Yes, the the farm is based in Cashel, just outside Cashel. Uh, the 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 farm is in Bally Bally Gerald, New Inn, a uh, little village just outside Cashel. Whenever you decided that this is something that you wanted to do, did you undertake a lot of research to identify all the different aspects of it, all the different considerations? Yes, well, it took a, a, a few years to get to get up and running from the from the early thoughts of, of doing it to researching it and travelling. Uh, to different countries to see the way the process was done, uh, mainly the UK, and um, where they've been doing this for for a good few years, the the, the pressing and the the bottling and and filtration of the oil, um, also then uh, to see the the machinery and the the the, the way it's been done and the, the kind of machinery that that is needed for the process, also in Germany and. Uh, that's that's all that uh, process was 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 seen and done uh, in the in the in, before the before we set up and also then to go through the the buildings and the the, the from the EHO the the environmental health officers and department of agriculture as well so was it a huge investment to get it up and running? It was big enough. It was uh, a sizable investment uh, to get it going. We got a little bit of help from the Enterprise Enterprise Ireland as well. Whenever it comes to oils, I think people are a bit bamboozled between olive oil and um, saturated oils and unsaturated oils. And now we're looking at, at cold-pressed rapeseed oil. Well, the cold press is very important because cold pressing is actually it, it is ex- exactly what it what it says. It's physically just cold pressing the little seeds by squashing them, and you get the oil out by doing that. Uh, which then that means you keep all the goodness in the oil, uh, or which the oil is rich in vitamin E, uh, high in omega three. Uh, which by cold pressing the oil, it keeps all those good traits in it. Uh, the oil is also low very low in saturated fat, which is the healthy the healthy uh, side of the oil. And um, that's, that's, that's the, the goodness of the oil. And the other side of the oil, then, it's, uh, it's our native oil. It's, it's grown and uh, produced in our own country. No air miles, then, to add to the, the cost of it? No air miles to add to the cost of it, but the only thing is it's a crop that has to be grown every year. It's not a grow, it's, it's not like an olive tree that produces, produces, produces. You have to sow your seeds every year, grow your crop, and in winter or autumn crops, you grow, you, um, it takes 11 months of the year to grow to get a crop. So you're 11 months waiting for your first crop and so on and so on. So is it labour intensive to an extent? process is pretty much the presses and, and so work away themselves, which is just physically squashing the seeds, um, the uh, bottling, and it depends on your machinery. What I have is, is labour. It is pretty much labour intensive with the uh, bottling and packing packing of, of the oil. The farming then is is as is, is any... any um, Tillage crop, it's it's uh, you know you have your your sowing and your you're looking after the crops and your harvest and then you dry your seed, so it's um, it's the same as, as most crops for for that. Unfortunately, we've no control over the weather conditions in Ireland, but obviously that doesn't annoy the the growing in any shape or form. Oh, every year has its own challenges from from pests to weather. Um, you just deal with what you have got. We've, we've we had a pretty okay harvest. 
the start of the harvest this just gone was pretty good. We had a bit of a disaster at the end of it, but thankfully I had the the oil seed was was harvested or wheat was, and the, and so on were were uh, under a bit more stress and stress and pressure. Um, but every year is different uh, through the through the growing season, uh, rain. Frost, snow, they don't affect it. Um, it, it. It's quite a strong crop at that stage. Um, the uh, the harvest, I suppose, is the, the most critical because it's at its most vulnerable stage. It's very brittle and you have seeds ready to be, to be harvested and um, the wrong type of weather, as in rain and some wind, could be, uh, could, could be a disaster for you. But you just have to manage and, you know, every year is different and... and, and uh, you go with what you, you you know you, you go with what you get and, and and that but hopefully it'll work out you know and the weather conditions and the type of soil and all of that can impact on the flavor of the oil that's correct uh, we're getting we're the only I'm the only one in Munster growing press, not the only one growing but the only one growing and pressing my own seed and uh, we're getting a, a a light a lighter tasting oil as we've got a great taste and have lost my hair in the last year year and the judges are, are comparing to a light nuttiness to the oil which um, gives an awful lot more flavour to your food and it allows you to do a lot more with the oil without getting too much aftertaste or too much overpowering of the oil and getting more um, taste from your other foods like salad dressings, marinating, pestos, also then for frying and roasting at high temperatures you don't get that overpowering taste from the oil. Uh, it, it's quite light and it works really well. It's very versatile in that it can be used for stir fries, for deep frying, for roasting, baking, salad dressings and marinating as well. Exactly, exactly. All due to the taste. And the, what we're finding is different areas of the country, different soils, you're going to get different flavours and tastes from the land. Um, and with the land we're, we have in Munster and Tipperary, we're getting that lighter taste from the, from, from the oil. So it's, it, it, it's a benefit to your cooking and that you're not getting that overpowering taste from it. There's a great collection of fantastic artisan producers in Tipperary and you're all very good to collaborate with one another and, and help each other out. That's right. There's the Tipperary food producers, so uh, a great group of people, um, and uh, from from big and small uh, uh, producers. So yeah, they're a great organisation, uh, great help, and um, yeah, they all we all work well together. If people want to get hold of the Emerald Oil Rapeseed Oil, then where can they get it? We're stocked in, in most super values across Munster. And also then some local artisan shops and butchers in, in, in local areas, Clonmel, uh, Cashel, uh, Tipperary, that kind of area locally. And um, we also do some um, food service to some local restaurants and hotels. Lovely. Well, listen, thanks so much for talking to me about it tonight. It sounds like you're still out and about in the farm at the moment, are you? Just just coming, just starting to tidy up and, and come in now. Yeah, there's a little bit of a breeze there. But it's, uh, it's uh, yeah, just, just finishing up now. Well, I'd say there's a cup of tea waiting for you there that you're very <laughs> much right, looking forward to. Right. So we let yeah. you go and let you get finished up. And thanks again for talking to me. No problem. Thanks a million. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste with Sharon Noonan. Sponsored by thetaste.ie. Voted Ireland's best online food and drink magazine. 
Welcome back to The Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan and just before the break, Michael Corbett spoke to us by phone from County Tipperary to tell us all about his unique emerald oils. And earlier on in the programme, Ron Forrestal from Forrestal Wine Merchants, our resident wine expert, shared his recommendations for festive wines to enjoy with the Christmas dinner and to give as gifts also. And if you visit forrestal.ie, you'll get full details of the extensive list of wines that Ron and his team stock. If you're just tuning in, you can catch up on Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM when it's repeated on Wednesday mornings at the new time of 8am. And the podcasts are available to listen to on SharonNoonan.com as well as iTunes and the podcast app. And it's also on the taste.ie website, voted Ireland's best online digital food and drink magazine. So finally tonight, I'm delighted to have the first episode of the Food on the Edge podcast to share with you. More than 500 people attended on each day of Food on the Edge earlier this year and it was held in Galway City. Around 45 of the world's best international and Irish chefs and food leaders took to the stage to share their food stories and debate topics and approximately 70 Irish food producers showcased their produce in the Artisan Food Village. And among the major themes of Food in the Edge this year were work-life balance for chefs and restaurateurs, food waste, mental health, racial diversity in the professional kitchen, combating hunger, nutrition and social disadvantage, restaurants and the community and food education. The dates for Food in the Edge 2018 are the 22nd and the 23rd of October and more world-class chefs and speakers are planned. In fact, the world's best female chef for 2016 and star of the Chef's Table Netflix series, Anna Ross, will return to speak once more at the 2018 Symposium. And whenever she was talking about her return next year, she said Food in the Age is the most inspiring event she had ever attended. So if you're interested in getting tickets, there's early bird tickets on sale at the moment until the 31st of January at the reduced rate of €250. And that includes two-day access to all the speaker talks, lunches, and the food is great, by the way, evening entertainment and a ticket to the wrap party. And as I say, that special rate is available until the 31st of January and the price goes up to 325 after that. So JP McMahon is the Food in the Age Symposium Director and JP also has a number of other roles in the culinary world, including his Michelin star restaurant Anir in Galway. And I was talking to him a couple of weeks ago and he told me about his new Food in the Age podcast. So I was delighted when he agreed to let me share it with you here on The Best Possible Taste. It's produced by Peter Megbosch and it really doesn't need any introduction. Hi, this is the Food on the Edge podcast, and I'm your host, JP McMahon. Hello and welcome to the Food on the Edge podcast. My name is JP McMahon, and I'm a chef, restaurateur, and director of the Food on the Edge Symposium, held in Galway, Ireland, each year. Each month on this podcast, we'll be discussing ingredients which relate to Irish food culture, its history, and its development. We'll also be interviewing speakers from Food on the Edge and talking to different chefs and farmers about what matters most to them in relation to food. One of our restaurants located in Galway is called Anir, which means the West. This restaurant focuses on produce from the West of Ireland. You could call it a terroir restaurant after the term from wine. 
as an island, we're probably blessed in Ireland to have a a great uh, country and a great land that grows uh, wonderful food and produces great uh, produce. However, we don't have a great history of cooking it. And I suppose this podcast hopefully will draw attention to some of the reasons why and also ask questions about what we can do in the future. Today's topic is seaweed. Yes, seaweed is is an interesting ingredient that has a nebulous Uh, relationship to to Irish food. I suppose we've used it throughout the years as everything except an ingredient in in many cases. It's it's very important as a fertilizer for the land and it has been used a lot in Ireland, particularly in relation to growing potatoes. Potatoes and seaweed were often uh, hand in hand in, uh, in Irish food. However, we didn't necessarily eat um, the, the, sea, the seaweed. However, it's also been used in the, the cosmetics industry and also in the food processing industry since the, since the 1950s and the latter half of the 20th century. Many people will know agar agar or uh, carrageen as thickening agents in, in sauces. But I suppose my interest is, um, I suppose, is the relationship between seaweed and Irish food uh, culture historically. Um, For me, if you think about the first peoples that came to Ireland 10 or 12,000 years ago, um, I think uh, you'd have to assume that that they ate seaweed and that they drew on this wonderful resource mixed together with our, our shellfish. Most of the locations that are prehistoric in Ireland, or many of them, are located beside, uh, beside the rivers and the, and the seas. And along with, um, I suppose, some of the prime ingredients that are associated with that time, salmon, eel and trout, seaweed plays uh, plays its part for people listening who, who live by the coast in Ireland and they might remember uh, seaweed harvests and uh, I know plenty of people such as uh, Dr. Prony Radican whose family has a rich tradition of harvesting seaweed up in Sligo and uh, I suppose picking it at different times of the years and uh, and uh, and drying it and uh, so we do have a tradition there it's just not at um, it's not at the forefront of our food culture um, seaweed is um, is located all around Ireland. We're an island, so it's uh, it's it's easily accessible for for most people. I think um, we're often, I suppose, afraid to, I suppose, venture into the wild side of things because um, we're, we're so used to dealing with processed food now and supermarkets and buying our food from, 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 I suppose, from people who have already processed it. And it's it's not, a, I suppose, a natural thing anymore to go out onto the strand and pick up seaweed and eat it. Uh, however, it's it's a it's very, very easy thing to learn how to do and it's a very, very safe thing to do. Um, and I think... Um, I think of all the seaweeds. Uh, for me, they're all edible. Just some are more um, more palatable than uh, than um, uh, than others. So you're saying that tradition was there. Why was it abandoned? I think, I suppose for me, and Prani talks about this, in the 20th century, seaweed became associated with poverty. Particularly, there's a story that I read of the people picking seaweed in the famine, and it was really the, the last resource. I mean, all the potatoes were gone. You went out onto the beach and you picked 
whatever, cockles, limpets, mussels, seaweed. And throughout the 20th century, when we became independent, to a certain degree, wild food and seaweed, which is one of those wild foods, became associated with with uh, hardship and poverty. And one forager said to me that, like it was, you were it was frowned upon to go down and pick your own food because you should be able to buy that food. And and that's we had this kind of hang up um, uh, in in post independent Ireland where we needed to, I suppose, as consumers, show our wealth and show our knowledge and show our our intellect and it survived in places like like in Sligo where they continued to harvest nori and uh, and alaria which which most people know as uh, as wakami um, but from i suppose from reading history books reading historically you do have little snippets of um, seaweed mentions um, from written records going back to the 8th century but then you also i suppose have to surmise pre-written record which is most of the most of the time in Ireland and that that people knew it was there and they were eating it because we can only relate to I suppose other countries that have archaeological evidence I think I read somewhere that in Chile there's they found archaeological evidence that people were eating seaweed um, about 14,000 years ago so we can only um, I suppose guess that the same thing was happening in um, in Ireland when people came here about 10,000 years ago. What actually is seaweed? Seaweed is unfortunately it's it's unfortunately named because I suppose generally weeds do not have the best uh, PR in the world. But um, I suppose seaweed is an algae that uh, that grows in um, it grows in the sea. Uh, it's generally divided into categories according to its color. It's generally divided into green, red, and brown seaweeds, and it's an edible uh, plant or vegetable. Um, and and in different this was a difference between sea uh, seaweed and the algae that grows. In in the canals is that um, is that you can't eat uh, the algae that grows in still water. Where exactly seaweed comes from? A seaweed, uh, I suppose, can, is found on the seashore, on most seashores. When you want to find seaweed, you really need to uh, to I suppose go out to the tide at its at its lowest point. And this is something that's very very easy to do now with uh, the internet. You can just look up um, the when the tide is low and and go out. There are um, two spring tides a month, and that's when the tide is is at its lowest. So. Seaweed is very much part and parcel of the of the tide and the moon, and and a lot of it relates in in a very I suppose holistic and ecological way. If you go down to the strand, you the the strand I suppose is divided into into certain uh, certain sections when you're looking for seaweed, and you have I suppose the the splash zone, which is the the top of the strand where you'll probably find bladderwrack, which is the one that generally everybody identifies with. It's the one with the little small bubbles that you can that you can burst, and by and large. This isn't, I suppose, the best um, seaweed for eating. It's not the most edible. It's really good as a fertilizer. It's also very good for for bats as well. You can have your have yourself a little seaweed bath if you fancy. However, I prefer to venture out a, a little further. And when you go down to, I suppose, the 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 upper tide, you get a lot of the the green seaweeds, um, sea lettuce, seagrass, uh, which are really really delicate seaweeds. You'll often find those seaweeds just floating around in the in the water if you're ever if you're, if you're ever taking a walk along the strand. Um, after that, you have the middle tide. In the middle area, you probably have the most amount of seaweed, and that's really why it's very very important to to get out. 
when the tide is out because this is a, this is a zone that will be um, that will be will be covered um, and in this zone you have your pepper dulse which is probably one of the most exquisite seaweeds it's called the, the truffle of the sea you also have your nori which you'll find attached to rocks um, and then you'll also have a little bit of sea lettuce here and a little bit of um, I suppose egg rack and some of the some of the different racks there's many many different uh, different types of uh, of um, of racks the last two zones the lower uh, tide and then subtitle um, have uh, have another I suppose have other great uh, seaweeds in them uh, sea spaghetti which again is very very identifiable because it looks like it looks like spaghetti um, you have uh, dulsk or dillisk as they say in, in Irish which is probably the seaweed that has the most historical resonance in Ireland it probably has the most mentions um, a lot of people cooked uh, potatoes in uh, in dillisk water they ate dillisk they gathered dillisks to um, to sell um, at the markets, so and it was also uh, used as a, um, as a, I suppose, as, as a, as a fertilizer as well. The the last zone has um, uh, two seaweeds in it that are probably uh, two of the two of the seaweeds that that are not um, readily edible in in the sense that most of the seaweeds that you encounter on the beach, such as dillisk or sea lettuce, you can just pick them up, and as long as they're not too sandy, you can just eat them, as long as the beach is clean. Then on the on the very last level you have two seaweeds kombu or kelp and and sugar kelp these two seaweeds have great value for for the japanese in terms of making stocks and dashies and also i suppose they play in part play part of making um uh, making miso a miso soup as well um and i suppose for me these are very very interesting seaweeds that that we can use because um they're overlooked but also as something that can flavor a stock or a soup they have the greatest potential for me to transform um Irish food. So if you take as an example some something as simple as a vegetable stock or a chicken stock or a fish stock, adding kombu or kelp can change the um, can change the flavour and give it um, I suppose a subtle seaweed taste that for me that gives the food a better sense of place than just making I suppose a chicken stock that would taste the same pretty much in say France or Spain or Ireland. So for me seaweed gives a great sense of place. Hi, this is the Food on the Edge podcast, and I'm your host, JP McMahon. So let's imagine that we're actually at the seashore, uh, the best time to harvest it. How do we do it? Seaweed grows on the rocks, and, and, and seaweed will continue to grow and re- revitalize itself. But it's very, very important when you're harvesting that you don't uproot it or take it off the rocks. Any of the seaweed that's floating around, if you encounter disc floating in the, in the sea, absolutely, by and large, just take it. The best thing to do is to get a, a shears, a little, uh, or a pruning shears or a large scissors, and, and snip it um, above the, uh, a couple of centimeters above the, its place where it's attached to the root. Usually you can snip the strands, uh, which is, uh, I think, the best way to, to let it regrow. So you're really trying to give it, um, uh, I suppose, a fighting chance. And also an important thing to, to, um, to uh, I suppose, keep in mind is always only take as much as you need, because there's no point in gathering loads and loads of seaweed and then bringing it back home and not knowing what to do with it at all. It's very easy to dry seaweed, and dried seaweed has a 
a different, I suppose, flavor potential than fresh seaweed. And, and it's very, very important to, I suppose, note the difference between the two of those things. But it's very important to to harvest this sustainably. And as anyone who's interested in, I suppose, the the what that looks like visually, it's very, very simple to go on the internet and Google uh, sustainable seaweed harvesting. And I think Prani and both Sally McKenna have little diagrams of where exactly to cut it. And it's very important that you don't tear it off the rocks because once you tear it off the rocks, then it's not going to grow back there again and in that way you can go back all year and just collect your seaweed um, the archaeologist uh, Michael Gibbons has actually uh, noted that people actually farmed seaweed in County Clare and they they would set the rocks up so they'd line them all up so the seaweed would grow and they'd actually farm seaweed uh, as a as a I suppose as a as a resource and as a and as a vegetable and in, in a lot of the stories about Irish um, seaweed in terms of eating, most of it happens on the on the west coast. Um, is I don't know if that's because the Atlantic produces a better quality seaweed than the Irish Sea, or that it's a bigger ocean. I suppose these are these are um, uh, uh, other issues that I suppose that 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 go beyond I suppose just just gathering the seaweed. But it is interesting that in the West, where I suppose you had the the poorest land generally in say the likes of Connemara, and that you have a rich tradition of harvesting seaweed. What would be the best way to start using seaweed in the kitchen? I think, I suppose not everyone can get down to the beach and, and pick seaweed. Uh, some people live inland, some people, uh, most people live in the city now. Um, for me, the easiest place to start is, is probably some of the health shops in, in Ireland. A lot of them stock Irish seaweed. You have uh, Wild Atlantic Sea Veg, um, you have Connemara Seaweed, are just two, uh, two examples, one in Clare and one in, one in, um, in Rossaville and Connemara. And you can buy little tubs of dried seaweed. Um, in the very, very simplest way seaweed say such as uh, dried dillis can be added to soup and one of the most uh, important things about seaweed other than the fact that it I suppose it tastes nice for me it is an acquired taste but it it does I I think it has great flavor potential is that it's full of vitamins and minerals potassium iron um, and it's it's great for for uh, supplementing the vitamins into the diet but it's also very very good for people who are vegetarian or people who are who are who are vegan and so i think going to the health shop and um uh, picking up a few different ones dillisk is probably the easiest one to start off with and it probably has the the most amenable taste in terms of its uh, its flavor in the in the restaurant we often add it to stocks um, we also add it to uh, add it to soup in our in our in our cafe. So we make a simple potato and leek soup, and then we add some dried milled dillisk. So generally, when you buy the dried seaweed, you can buy it whole or you can buy it milled. For people at home, the easiest way to buy, uh, for me anyway, is to buy it milled because then you can add it to uh, to things. Just today, I made a, a chicken stock at home and I added uh, milled nori to it. So it gives it gives a great. Um, flavor boost to it and also has the kind of health benefits um, in it. One of the things that about adding seaweed to the to your food is that it, it kind of I suppose increases the umami potential of the food and and what that is 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 I suppose the, is a is a Japanese discovery and it's the, I suppose the fifth kind of taste uh, sensation together with um, salt sugar sweet and bitter and you have you have your mammy it's somewhere between sweet and savory and we generally uh, enjoy foods that are umami rich such as parmesan cheese dried mushrooms 
but dried seaweed also has that um, uh, has has great kind of umami potential, and it was the Japanese that discovered um, that in the early 20th century through their through investigations of um, of looking at kelp and uh, and and kombu. So it's a great way to get flavour into your food. Could you tell us a little bit about different kinds of seaweed? Yeah, so I mean, we were just talking about, I suppose, in the uh, on the dried variety, and and the dried variety and the fresh variety are very, very different, and they have those different ways of, of of being used. When you pick fresh seaweed, it's generally good for for three or four days. Um, bringing it home after the beach, it's generally it's good to soak it in water and rinse it. Um, and I suppose I always start off with the I suppose the, the on the fresh front, I always start off with the light ones. So we look at sea lettuce which is which is a beautiful uh, green seaweed that you can add to any salad so you have a goat's cheese salad or you have a, a prawn salad sea lettuce is a really really beautiful uh, seaweed that you can that you can add to, um, to those salads and um, then you have dillisk and nori and wakame which are also soft soft enough to eat raw they, they don't necessarily have to be cooked there is a great tradition of cooking nori um, in Wales. They, they cook it and produce lava bread, and that was also produced in, in Ireland as well. But for me, combining these seaweeds and chopping them up and making almost like a salsa, I mean, we're very used to salsas because of, I suppose, the influx from, from Spain and from, and from Mexico, a tomato salsa or a red onion salsa. But uh, a seaweed salsa, I think, is for me, is a very, very beautiful thing. Taking some diced onion, uh, some oil, some salt, some vinegar, and then adding in some diced sea lettuce, diced dillisk, diced nori and dice wakami and then putting that all together and that pairs really well with them um, with uh, with any I suppose any fish um, at all oysters or seafood then you have seaweeds I suppose somewhere in the middle of of um, of that have to be cooked and that can be eaten fresh and some people would put probably wakami in there where cooking it a little bit does tenderize it uh, another one sea spaghetti I suppose when it's very very young in the spring I think it's, it's beautiful to, to eat raw in the autumn, it grows a lot, and generally you need to cook it. But you don't need to cook it as long as, say, for uh, as long as pasta. You can you can blanch sea spaghetti for a couple of minutes, and then use it as you would any any other type of spaghetti. You can also, I find, mix the two of them. It's probably a little bit more palatable to people who are eating it for the first time. Um, but sea sea spaghetti is, a, is 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 really really beautiful seaweed, and it pairs really well with lamb and cheese and and different uh, different combinations. As I said, the last two, the kombus, uh, or the kelps rather, the, the, the sugar kelp and the kombu, both of them need to be cooked. And I find the best way to, uh, to cook them is to put them in water and, uh, and simmer them for about, about an hour. It's very, very important that you don't boil them because generally when you boil seaweed in water, it kind of releases a certain bitterness. So really just simmering that. And after that, you have the base of a beautiful, a beautiful dashi that you can add dried mushrooms to and increase the kind of umami profile. You can use chicken stock as a base and put your kelp in and your dried mushrooms and then you have a, a really wonderful um, broth, that a broth base that you can use to make a soup. I know that you own this beautiful seaweed promoting t-shirt, so could you tell us why seaweed now? This was it's a very good question. I think for me, seaweed is, a, is an underused resource in Ireland. It, it has always been there and we've never effectively um, farmed it or used it to, to its greatest potential. If you look at, say, Japanese food culture, 
there are two things that dominate Japanese food culture, uh, raw fish and seaweed. And both of those things are readily available in Ireland in the sense that we have really, really beautiful prime fish that we can eat raw and we have really, really beautiful seaweed. And they have built, uh, I suppose, an entire food culture behind this. And of course, it's channeled through sushi and nigiri and different ways. But for me, the T-shirt that says we need, to, we need to talk about seaweed is, I suppose, is asking people the question that when you go around Ireland, particularly the coastal areas, seaweed should dominate a menu. Um, in the sense that seaweed can be paired with beef, with fish, with chicken, with vegetables. But generally, if you go into any restaurant or any pub or any cafe, you won't see any seaweed on the menu at all. And some people will say that it's not everyone's cup of tea and it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, the flavour potential is, is too strong. But I, I think for me that's a lazy way out. And in, in, our, in our new cafe, uh, Tartar, which is located in, in, in Galway as well, uh, one of the aims was to see how we can get seaweed more on the menu. Can we get it more into the desserts? Can we get it more into the soup? Can we get it into the salad? And in that way, it's like it's, you're never going to get... Uh, people to eat seaweed if you take a hammer to their head and say I need you to eat this now it has to be in a kind of subtle and uh, and a nice way so by getting a little bit of uh, nori that we spoke of into the chocolate brownie which again pairs really really well getting a bit dillisk into the soup having some sea lettuce in the salad these things I think for me mark a food culture and they give food a certain sense of place and for me and i've said this time and time again that seaweed is should be our national vegetable and it should be the prime food of ireland and it's sitting there and whether we pick it or not or whether we export it for me it's it's really really important that we garner it as a national resource and and over the next 20 or 30 years uh, build our food culture around this stuff our oceans pollution gets worse every year. Do we know anything about seaweed's pollution? Yeah, like seaweed actually counters pollution. Seaweed is very, very good for, I suppose, cleaning the the ocean. And of course, if you're if, if there has if the if the ocean is polluted, then you can't eat the seaweed naturally. Um, and that's why, for me. Uh, seaweed farming is a very very sustainable way of producing seaweed so you have wild seaweeds and you have seaweed farms so up in say um, Rattlin Island up in Northern Ireland there is a seaweed farm there producing kelp and it sells it into, into England so I mean seaweed along with shellfish for me are very very sustainable ways of farming the oceans because at the moment we are I suppose overfishing um, uh, to, uh, to a large degree um, and we're not really thinking about, I suppose, how to use the, the, the ocean correctly. We're still, I suppose, depleting the wild stocks. And we need a certain balance between wild food stuff and farmed uh, food stuff that, that, we, that we produce. But for me, um, uh, seaweed farming, uh, I suppose, coupled together with growing mussels and growing oysters, things that have a very, very low impact on the, on the, on the ocean floor. Uh, so this type of uh, aquaculture, um, which I suppose is is uh, puts less stress on the land. I think farming, again, traditional farming, puts a lot of stress on the land. Also uh, contributes to uh, I suppose to climate change um, as uh, as well. So I think we need a balance between these things because we're not going to stop growing vegetables or, or rearing beef or that. And of course, that's not something that uh, that I want that I want to happen. But I think we just need a better balance between these things and uh, the 
things that the ocean can give us. And I think by looking back into Irish food history, we can we can I suppose get inspiration to take a food culture to to the next level in the future. Thank you very much. Thank you. That's our host, JP McMahon, and Przemek Brosz on this side. We'd like you to post comments on our website, on our Facebook page. Please spread the word about this show and, well, see you soon. Thank you very much. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste with Sharon Noonan. Sponsored by thetaste.ie. Voted Ireland's best online food and drink magazine. So that was the first episode in the new Food in the Age podcast series and we look forward to more of those. And that brings us to the end of tonight's programme. Thanks for listening and to my guests, Ron Forrestal and Michael Corbett and to JP McMahon and Peter Mebros. Until next week, have a great week. And bon appetit. Thanks for listening to The Best Possible Taste with Sharon Noonan. Sponsored by thetaste.ie. Voted Ireland's best online food and drink magazine. To get in touch with The Best Possible Taste, email Sharon at SharonNoonan.com or tweet Sharon at Queen of Org. As in, Queen of Organisation. Bon appetit.